We've been working through a series. What we're doing is we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus is known for two things. He's known for the words he spoke and the things he did, and you can't really separate the two. You can't pick and choose. It's not that we like his teaching but reject what he did or that we like what he did but reject his teaching. He and his word are one. He is the only man in history who lived with perfect integrity, which is to say oneness with himself, that what he taught, he lived. There was no hypocrisy in Christ. So on this Easter Sunday, when we celebrate the things he did, his death, his resurrection from the dead, which has changed history for all time, we're also wanting to dig into some of the meaning behind that by looking at the words, the explanation, the teachings he gave. And so we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and you can find that on page 1426, Matthew chapter 5, page 1426. We're going to read a few verses from there. But you also need to put a finger in Psalm 37, which... If you open the Bible right bang in the middle, you'll fall into the Psalms usually. Um, It's page 767. I'm going to read to you about half of that Psalm as we begin. So let me start with the the Beatitudes. We'll just read uh, the first five verses of Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And uh, this psalm, the reason we're reading this psalm, as you'll see, is that basically Jesus is summing up this psalm when he said that. That's saying, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So if you pay careful attention to it, you'll begin to see some of the ideas and themes that come through in this teaching. Let's just read the first 22 verses. It's a psalm of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. 
The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. We live in, in a world that is largely governed, it seems, by the force of brute strength. Um, it's there in what is the dominant philosophy of how we got here, survival of the fittest. But it's there in just day-to-day life, in day-to-day society, that what we see is that the strong thrive and the weak seem to fall away and end up at the bottom of the rubbish heap. And that is exactly what this psalm is, is wrestling with, the issues of what you see in life as the kind of injustices, the imbalances, and all that that produces in the heart of the believer when you see it happening. I remember one of our um, science teachers when I was at school used to read us these apparently funny, um, what were called deep thoughts of a man called Jack Handy. And generally speaking, they were not funny. But one of them stuck in my brain, and I just thought I'd maybe share it with you today. It goes like this. I can picture in my mind a world without war, a world without hate, and I can picture us attacking that world because they'd never expect it. (laughs) So this is the backdrop. David is, is looking at the problem that we see in life, which is that bad men seem to do well. They prosper. It's there in verse 7. He says, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. So he's saying to the believer, you look around you and you see bad people doing well. Maybe cheating and getting better results than you. Maybe lying and making better sales results than you. Maybe... Whatever it is, you're seeing people avoiding and evading their tax and being richer than you. You see bad people, and it seems that they prosper and they get ahead. And part of the problem that he's saying is that it's not only that the the bad people prosper, but they prosper by doing bad things, that the bad things seem to benefit them. And he, he gives us examples through this psalm, like in verse 12, the wicked plotting against the righteous and gnashing their teeth. And in verse 14, how they're drawing their sword and bending their bows to bring down the poor and needy to slay those whose way is upright. Obviously, this is all, you know, 9th century BC language that doesn't really have much resonance. I've never really seen an evil man pulling his bow and arrow in London these days. It doesn't happen that way. But what we're seeing is that the macro scale injustice and at the micro scale of your life, of my life, just the, the... The little things that we see around us that make us frustrated in life, inequalities and envy of other people, a sense of competition with those around us, and a sense that it's not always through being godly that you get ahead. And so what that does is it produces a couple of things in the heart of the believer. One can be a crisis of faith, that a Christian looks at life and says, God, are you really paying any attention I've been trusting you, but my bank account is still in the negative. Or I've been looking for a better job and it hasn't come my way and I'm trying to be godly. I'm trying to do what's right. We've been praying hard and not much has been happening. So on the one hand, you have this sort of the potential for a crisis of faith when you think, is God really with us? Is he really blessing us? Is his promise really for us? Because it seems to me when I look at my life that that maybe isn't the case. And then on the other hand, you have this this temptation to imitate the way the world acts in order to get ahead, which can be just the smallest things in day-to-day life 
um, to work as hard as the guy on the next desk, even though that means neglecting time with God or time with your family. It can mean um, holding back from being generous when you know God's told you to be generous. And there are countless, limitless examples of the way that we're tempted to, to put ourselves, pit ourselves against the people around us and then imitate the way the world acts. And so it's into that context that David wrote this psalm and said that it's through meekness, you see it there in verse 11, that the meek shall inherit the land. And that what Jesus reiterated in the Beatitudes when he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Now for anybody who wants to do anything with their life, which I assume is hopefully everybody here, if you want to in any way make a mark with your life, or you know, succeed in some sense. That's what's captured by this idea of inheriting the land. It was imagery of just being blessed by God in life. That your life means something. That you achieve something in life. That you do something that counts. That it has eternal value. That's what this, this phrase sort of captures. And therefore, if, if that's what it means, then it ought to provoke us to ask, what was Jesus talking about here when he said that it's the meek who make this mark, who inherit the land. And I want us to spend a good part of our time just thinking about what this word meek means, because I'm not sure that most of us really have a very clear idea about that. In order to ask what it means, we need to start with some of the negatives. First of all, meekness is not weakness. I think that's probably the most common misconception about the word meekness. I remember an English literature teacher who, of all people, ought to know what words mean, just saying meekness is weakness. And actually, when you begin to look at, at what the Bible's understanding of meekness is, that's completely wrong. But at the time of Jesus, apparently people thought the exact same thing. They saw meekness. One of the commentators says that they saw it as a vice because they failed to distinguish meekness from servility. Servility is the kind of a demeanor and attitude where you're just kind of um, a groveling sort of person who, who doesn't have any sense of self-worth in life. And therefore, the Greeks thought that a servile person, a meek person, as they characterized them, would never be destined for leadership, would never be destined for greatness. And so they equated these two things of meekness with weakness. And it seems to me that the exact same thing happens today. But you know, Jesus said of himself... In this famous passage that we've come back to so many times in Matthew 11, Jesus said these words. He said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That word gentle is the exact same word that's used in the Beatitude for meekness. It's just translated differently because of the context. Now, when you are looking at that passage and Jesus is inviting you, he's he's saying, I'm like... The, the ox in the field, and I have a yoke on my shoulders, and you are welcome to come and sit under my yoke with me, and we'll pull together. Two things about the word that seem to me most important and striking. And firstly, that he, he is communicating a kind of humility, a gentleness. That's why it's such an inviting thing when Jesus says to you, come under my yoke, because I'm meek. There's something humble and gentle about him, something approachable, that he's not like the God you imagined, He'll, he'll push you in your face on the dirt and crush you under the weight of your own sin. He says, I love you. I want you to be helped. 
But in no way could we understand what he's saying there to mean I'm weak. It would make no sense, would it? It'd be like um, if I was to go on a tandem bicycle with my wife, um, I know that would be a losing prospect for me from the very start because she is weak and I am not so weak. So if Jesus was coming along and saying, hey, come under my yoke because I'm really weak. Yeah, she's also pregnant, but... But if Jesus was, it would make no sense, would it? If you're saying, I'm really weak, so why don't you come under my yoke and you'll find it a lot easier? It's a complete contradiction. So obviously meekness isn't weakness. He didn't associate the two things. And we shouldn't put them in the same box or understand them in the same way at all. That's the first thing. The second thing is that meekness is not a personality thing. What do I mean? Well, I think that we often think that meekness is... It's something which some people have naturally, like introverted people, people who are more retiring, people who want to sit in the shadows, people who are more reluctant to, um, to take the spotlight or to, be, to take the lead or to push forward. And so you can think that meekness is just a personality thing. I remember a few years ago, I don't know if any of you have ever done um, StrengthsFinder, which is a bit, like, a bit like Myers-Briggs type thing where you end up with like five characteristics about yourself. Um, the top five, and out of a list of over 30. And a friend of mine called Joel, he was, um, we were both working at, uh, at church together at the time. And he took StrengthsFinder. And uh, he came out, well, let me just read you the first two things that he came out. I, I thought he was going to be here today, which means, I, and he didn't come, so I feel absolutely no guilt in, in uh, <laughs> selling him out like this. But his first two were competition and significance. Um, competition says this, people who are especially talented in the competition theme, they measure their progress against the, the performance of others, they strive to win first place and they revel in contests. And then significance, people who are especially talented in the significance theme want to be very important in the eyes of others. They are independent and they want to be recognized. So Joel read that and he recoined it. Instead of StrengthsFinder 2.0, he called it SinFinder 2.0. Because he thought this is... And whatever you make of that, I think we're in trouble, aren't we, if Jesus is saying that certain kinds of personalities, I mean, inherent, inherent characteristics that you've got in your genes are ones that God likes and other ones are ones that God doesn't like. And he's going to bless only certain kinds of people. And it's not true to scripture. It's not true to the Bible storyline. You look at guys like Caleb. Caleb goes into the promised land and he is 80 at this point, but he's built like a tank. He's got a big white beard and he carries a sword and he wants to take his mountain. I'm modeling myself, obviously, (laughs) on one day becoming like Caleb. But he's 80 years old. But the guy has this fighting spirit. He's been chomping at the bit for 40 years. He was only 40 when he first went into the land, came back, said, we can do it. No one believed him. He had to wait for an entire generation to die out. So by the time he's 80, the guy is like, well, can we do it now? Now, usually that enthusiasm you associate with youth, don't you? That has to do everything to do with the way he was wired. He was... And I don't think that that's a contradiction with meekness, as you'll see as we unfold what we're saying. Moses is called the most meek man on the face of the earth. That's what the Bible says about him. He's also the guy, by the way, who delivered over a million people from slavery. So is he a kind of retiring, mousy personality? I don't think so. I'm not sure that we can associate this with personality types or characters in that sense at all. David also. The youngest brother, the runt of the litter, just... Rejected to go and look after the sheep, horrible job, 
the entire army is worst out in front of this giant Goliath. And David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he defies the armies of the living God? Now, in no way are we then going to say that David was a kind of weak person or indeed that his personality was um, a guy who just wanted always to stick in the shadows or anything of that kind. So we can't associate meekness with these ideas that we build up in our head. Thirdly, meekness is not a passive thing. I think that um, one of the ideas that you, you maybe saw if you paid attention to the psalm is that some of it is like back-footed, that we need to rest into God's sovereignty, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But at no point in the Bible does, does it associate meekness with passivity and unwillingness to tackle issues and to grab them and deal with stuff. The Bible always says that faith in God is married with action. Sometimes that action is a reliance on God by sitting back and doing nothing, which is what David is describing here in the psalm, doing nothing with the problem as you see it. Sometimes faith in God is stepping forward and doing something, tackling issues as you see them in front of you. But meekness is not passivity. If God had a church entirely made up of passive people who never dealt with things and never stepped forward to do anything with their lives, we'd have a problem, wouldn't we? You'd never have pioneer missionaries. You'd never have new initiatives. You'd never have men of God who step up and put their neck on the block. You'd never have martyrs. You'd never have apostles. You'd never have any of that. It's not passivity. And there's nothing inherently good about passivity in itself. There's something good about faith, which we'll see a bit later. So it's not a weakness thing. It's not a personality thing. It's not a passive thing. And lastly, it's not a passive-aggressive thing. What's passive aggression? Passive aggression is... Um, avoiding face-to-face conflict. So David's saying, look, all this evil's going on around you. What you could do is, is, uh, is confront it, or you could not confront it. And you, so you might think that one of the ways of, of dealing with it is not confronting it head-on, but by dealing with things in a kind of roundabout, slightly, um, slightly um, uh, sort of undercover way, which is passive aggression. It's like when somebody um, takes all your chamomile tea out of the cupboard at work, and then you... You know, you, you fill the box with normal tea just to trick them, just to spite them. Or you do something ridiculous, like you go to a restaurant and you hate it. And instead of telling the manager how terrible the staff were and how horrible the food was, you go on TripAdvisor immediately and give them zero stars. This is the worst restaurant I've ever been to. That's passive aggression. But the thing about passive aggression is that even though you might have the facade of meekness, so everyone looks at you and you think, oh, what a peace-loving, um, kind, gentle person. In, in your heart, you're harboring all this bitterness and anger and all this, all this kind of horrible stuff is going on inside. It's, meekness has nothing to do with any of those things. So what on earth is meekness then? It's a really important question, isn't it? I want to put it to you that what we're talking about here, rather than something that's inherent in us, is something supernatural that God does in a person. And it has two faces to it, two sides to it. One is a new way of seeing yourself. Another is a new way of seeing God. Let me just explain what I mean. A meek person will see themselves in a new light. In this way. that We've been saying how these beatitudes, these sayings, have a kind of logical sequence to them. They kind of unfold in, in a journey. The way that you begin with this, this sense of being poor in spirit, and then this mourning for your sin. That's what it means to become a Christian, that you start there. 
And then when we get to this third beatitude, this is what it produces. For somebody who's poor in spirit, somebody who's, who's mourned over this sin, becomes a meek person. That was just delightful, wasn't it? So, <laughs> becomes a meek person. In this sense, that when you've when you're truly poor in spirit, when you've truly mourned over your sin, the pride upon which you built your life has been cut down at the very root. The edifice of trying to build your life on who you are and what you've achieved has been damaged at the very foundation. That's what it means to become a Christian, is that you no longer build your life for its own glory and you humble yourself to the ground. And so a person who has experienced this work of God in your heart, a supernatural work of God in your heart, they see themselves differently. You can't look at yourself in the same way anymore. It means that when people attack you and criticize you, a meek person knows that whatever they say is not even going to come close to the reality about how bad you are. And so you're meek. You don't feel the need to defend yourself. A meek person, if they're held back from opportunities and find that your ambitions are thwarted, will be conscious that your life is lived in service to the sovereign God. And you don't have to push yourself ahead in the same way. You don't need to be made more of in life because your life is reoriented now. It's not about yourself. That's what it means to become meek. It, has, it carries heavily this idea of humility, I think. It's not just a new way of looking at yourself, though. And I hope you can see that that's got nothing to do with an inherent quality. That's something only God can produce in you by His Spirit. It's also a new way of seeing God. Anybody who has truly become a Christian has to have had some sense of awe before a holy God, a sovereign holy God who is in charge of all creation. And when you look at your life through that lens, when you understand that God is in control of the details of your life, Meekness is a kind of natural follow-on from that because you no longer have to strive. You no longer have to control. You no longer have to take things into your own hands. Why? Because you're not in charge of your life in any case. God is. A meek person then is somebody who sees themselves in proper perspective in relation to God And therefore, acts accordingly. Your whole mentality, your attitude, the way you approach life will change as God produces this characteristic in you. What might it look like? Well, when we scan through the psalm, there's so many things that we could point out. But just look down at verses 8 and 9, you'll see a few things there. He says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. So instead of anxiety, a meek person is at peace before the God who is in control of everything that's happening around you. 
The wicked are prospering. So what? God, God knew that. God's in control of that. God's also in control of my circumstances. I don't need to fret and be anxious about my life, about where I'm going, about whether I'll achieve what I hope to achieve. God is in control. Look at the next line. He says, for the evildoers shall be cut off. Verse 9. A meek person doesn't need to seek revenge. They don't need to be the one who sets the world to right by balancing the, the scales of karma because you recognize that there's a holy God in heaven who sees everything. And so you don't have to be vengeful. When stuff happens to you that you don't like, you can forgive. You can let it go. You can trust God. Look at the next line. He says, those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. A meek person is somebody, and remember, this is, David is describing meekness in this psalm. It's there in verse 11, the meek shall inherit the land. And he says it here, that those who wait for the Lord. Now this isn't passivity, it's patience. It's a consciousness that God is in control, that reshapes your faith toward him. And really that's where we need to understand this all points, that what David is talking about, what Jesus is talking about, what meekness is truly, is that it is faith in the awesome God. It's trusting in Him. It's believing in Him. I was reading this passage this morning, and it just struck me how it just resonated so much with these ideas. In Romans 12, Paul closes off, and just bear with me as we just think about I think this is a description of meekness in the, in, the, in the church. He says, bless those who persecute you and bless and don't curse them. He says, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think just one way of understanding this is that you live as though God is real. And his word is true. And that what he says about himself is real. That he's in control, that he's the judge, and that we don't have to take matters into our own hands, but we can live in the light of the reality of God. And so he says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is meekness. Now what's the promise that goes with it? Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. How does meekness make us inheritors? Well, All the way through the psalm, there are these promises that are littered through. He says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Very famous verse. He says, the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. He says, those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. He says, the steps of a man are established by the Lord. In other words, he'll make you successful, foot in front of foot, as you go through life. That's what it means to have your steps established by the Lord. When he delights in his way. When God delights in your way. It says, though he fall, he shan't be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Now, I think when we read this sort of stuff, we think about what it means for you to be meek in day-to-day life. You know, when, when you think about your career path, your chosen 
destination, your ambitions, your hopes, what you want to do for Christ, what you want to do in life. I think that it's very easy to, to hear these promises and then substitute a kind of a yes but attitude. A kind of yes but, if I, if I were meek in the way that we're talking about here, I'll just get trampled on. I'll just be overlooked. I'll be bullied. I'll be um, pushed into the shadows. I think that kind of mentality reveals that we don't really believe what Christ is saying here. And that what our problem is at root is a lack of faith. And so I want you to understand that meekness in David's mind and in Christ's mind is the ultimate expression of faith. This is why it's a mighty way to live your life. God delights in people who trust in him. And that's what comes through all the way through the psalm. You see it there in verse 4. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. He says in verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He says in verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself. God may well give you an inheritance in a way you don't expect. I think that the psalm teaches us that in a number of ways. Let me just show you a few. When he says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart, I think it's possible that God won't always give you what you were hoping for in life, but he'll reshape your desires. Many people have said about that verse, that when you truly delight yourself in God, your desires are, are changed, they're transformed. So you can't automatically fill your picture of what it means to inherit the land with all that you, you naturally want to put in that box, all your natural ambitions and so on. I think that part of what it means to be meek is to have your desires reshaped so that your, de- your definition of what inheriting the land is is reshaped by your delight in God. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart, but don't think that your desires will be unaffected by the fact that you delight in him. I think also that one of the ways in which we, un- we can understand this inheriting is that God can produce contentment in us with what we already have. He says in verse 16 that better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. You can think of it this way. That who do you think is really an inheritor in life? Is it the man who has unfathomable wealth but always feels like he needs a little bit more? Or is it the man who has very little but feels totally at peace with what God has given him? Contentment is a powerful way that Christ can make you an inheritor when God fills your heart and you know that you have enough. Another way that he can cause you to, to, to sense that you have inherited is that he can give you an eternal perspective. So that it might mean that not everything that you hope for in this life and that you even feel that God has promised you will come to pass in the way that you expected. When you look at life through the lens of eternity, it totally shifts the way you understand your life at all. So you look at how he talks about the wicked in verse 20. He says the wicked will perish. He says that they vanish like smoke. They vanish away. So even if they seem to have gone further, done more and prospered more in life, he says the whole thing, the whole thing just comes shattering to the ground the moment they die and they bring nothing with it, nothing of it with them into eternity. But he says in contrast about the righteous, that the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. The part of this is just seeing that what you're wanting to do in life is not necessarily 
have a successful life in the way you imagined that it would be, but rather have it in the way that Christ says this will last. This will have eternal rewards. And so I want to say all those things as kind of caveats to what I'm about to say, really. Because despite all of those things, I still think that there's something of this where God just says that when you truly trust him, when you truly put yourself in a position of faith and meekness before God and recognize his sovereignty, God can do far more in your life than you had even hoped or imagined. And I say that because I think the Bible shows us that in so many stories. I think about a man like Joseph. There he was with incredible dreams that God had put in his heart about what God would do with his life, how he would become a ruler. And in fact, all his brothers, his older brothers and his father would end up bowing down to him. And they hate him because of his dreams. And they put him in slavery. And then from slavery, he ends up in prison on a false charge. And then in prison, he's forgotten. But God somehow puts his hand on Joseph and picks him up out of the very gutter of Egypt and then makes him a number two to Pharaoh himself. I think it's one of the most moving stories in the Bible. But what it is, is a living example of what Jesus is talking about here. That when God makes a man meek, he can use him for his own glory. And so Joseph becomes a savior. He becomes a deliverer of his own people. Humbled to the ground, yet in a posture not of anger, not of resentment, not of revenge, not of pushing himself forward, but of complete trust in a sovereign God. And God takes him up and he gives him more power than few have ever experienced in the history of mankind. It's the same story with Daniel, isn't it? I guess that when he was ripped out of his home by Nebuchadnezzar and brought to Babylon, as a teenager, he was probably castrated. He was certainly um, made to... They attempted to make him forget his history and his identity by learning the language of the Babylonians and by being put through their university and in it all, it was, an, it was a way to remold the best from all Jewish society, men like Daniel, and make them Babylonians. And Daniel could have felt deep resentment, aggression, revenge. But instead, he keeps trusting in the sovereign God. He doesn't think, God, you've abandoned me. I must take my life into my own hands. He doesn't think, God, you're not true to your promises. I've read the Psalms, but look at me. I'm in... I'm in I'm basically in slavery in a foreign land. Instead, he keeps trusting God. He has an unshakable rock-like faith in God. He's one of the few men in the Bible who you struggle to find anything wrong with the man. And God lifts him up and he makes him number three in the empire. I look at these stories and I think, isn't this exactly what Jesus is talking about? Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the land. That when a man is truly believing in God and recognizes that God is sovereign over his life, God can do things with him, maybe not on that scale, but on some scale, which is beyond what you'd even hope for. And I want us just to finish by thinking about Jesus himself. 
As I said to you at the beginning, Jesus in his integrity, he lived what he preached. And when he preached that blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the land, Jesus had in his heart an inheritance. But he had to adopt a posture of meekness first. Paul describes it in Philippians 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, adopt the same manner of life as Christ, your Savior. He says, who though he was in the form of God. So there he was in eternity. At the right hand of the Father. But he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So rather than grabbing and rather than seizing, Jesus was able to let go trust in the sovereignty of his father that's what it means and he says in this meekness he says who though he was in the form of God didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men that was the first level of Jesus humbling that being at the right hand of the father he took a place of total obscurity a very poor man in an obscure place, in an obscure part of the world. I don't think it's any accident that Jesus was born poor. I don't think it was any accident that he was born in a, and put in a manger, in a kind of feeding trough, in a stable. I think all of this is, is meant to communicate something to us about Jesus. I think in the Lord of the Rings about how Aragorn, before he's Aragorn, he's Strider. He's this obscure character who wanders in the wastelands in a hooded garment. And nobody really knows who he is, except just a couple of people. But he's happy with his obscurity. I think Tolkien probably deliberately wrote him that way as a picture of who Jesus is in his humbling and taking on human flesh. But then it doesn't stop there, because Paul goes on. He says, and being found in human form, there he is, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's low already. He's already poor. He's already homeless in his own description. And then he says, I'll go further. I'll go deeper into humility, into self-denial, into meekness. As an act of faith. That's what you have to understand about Christ. That his life was lived by faith and his meekness was an expression of faith in the almighty God. It's put this way in in Isaiah 53. This passage written so many centuries before Christ, but prophetically describing the death of Christ. He says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces He was despised and we esteemed him not. There was a sadness about Jesus, it seems. It seems that he knew perhaps deeper sorrow than any man in history because in his perfection he looked at the world around him and he he wept. He, He no doubt had something of a sadness in his demeanor. And to compound that, everybody seemed to hate him. That's what he says. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And then look at the meekness of Christ as he's led to the cross. It says he was oppressed and was afflicted 
and yet he opened not his mouth. Isn't this a description of, of meekness? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Christ was willing to go to death, and he was willing to go to death without objecting, without fighting, without demanding his rights, and without protesting. Don't you know who I am? Even on trial, he was silent, he was quiet. He accepted what God had in store for him. He said, take this cup from me, but if it's not your will, only if it's your will. Otherwise, he said, I'll drink it. He wanted to take what God had in store for him. And then there's this word in Philippians 2 where Paul says, therefore. And I just saw this morning, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, unless you understand what Paul means when he uses the word therefore, you don't understand anything about Paul's writings. Because it, the whole thing hinges here. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You can build a life for yourself where you bestow on yourself the worth that you think you are due. Or... You can wait for God. You can wait for God to exalt you, for God to give you a name. And that's what Christ did. And it goes on to say that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Christ was raised from the the dead, and today is Easter Sunday, commemorating that resurrection, It was the vindication of his faith. It was the vindication of his trust in the Father. He surrendered his life to God's sovereignty. And God was true to his word. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. And Paul says of Jesus that Christ has inherited not just the land of Israel, but the whole earth and all of its peoples. Friends, Christ wants us to be modeled on on the pattern that he set. He wants us to become like him. Have you been humbled and made meek by the gospel? It ought to increasingly, day by day, kill the pride in us and the striving and the self-assertion and make us more willing to to be humble before a watching world? Has that affected the way that you live your life, your manner, your attitude? That you're here to love and to serve others and not to push yourself forward. And does this mean that you have a faith in God, that God can bless you even as you shun the world's methods and embrace the meekness that Christ is talking about here? Friends, this ought to become more and more true of us as we look at Christ and as we look at the gospel.